Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's bit.ly, slash perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. I'm really excited. I, uh, a friend of mine who is a reader of mine emailed me like months ago and said, would you read or record yourself reading a particular one of your books? Because that was something that like they were going to find very comforting apparently in these times. And, uh, and I said, sure. And then like the more I did it, I was like, I've got to get some writer friends in here to help me with this. And, uh, and then I was like, Oh, public domain radio would be a lot of fun because, that same person had said, when you get done with that book, why don't you try reading Dracula as, you know, your book? I was like, oh, that'd be fun. I wonder if it's legal for me to read Dracula. And it apparently is. And, and I was book. like, hmm? Yeah. It's an old book. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. then it was like, every writer I know has like a favorite novel that's something they read in school or whatever that, uh, that like becomes sort of the thing that they just always go back to as their comfort read. And for me, it's Dracula or Wuthering Heights, either of those. Um, apparently I have a thing for books about bad boyfriends. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, and then I was like, well, I could get other writers to talk about that. So tell us about yourself. So I'm Samantha Bryant, and I am best known for writing the Menopausal Superhero Series which is just what it sounds like it is. You know, if your superheroes this time are not footloose and fancy free 17 year olds, but women who have some experience, let's put it that way. Experience sounds nicer than years, right? <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. And um, they all get superpowers and spend the series deciding what to do with them. Yeah. I think that's wonderful. <laughs> well, thank you. I described it. Let me know if you would rather I not include this in the final episode. I described it to a friend as saying, these are some women who have seen some shit. <laughs> no, that's very accurate. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, and some of them would very clearly say they are too old for this shit. Mm, mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I think that personally, I think that's way more interesting in superheroes than like 14 year olds with powers. Yeah, I mean, the, some of those stories have charmed me and been, oh, and been interesting, yeah. especially when I was younger. But, you know, one of the reasons I started writing these is because I couldn't connect with those characters the same way anymore as I became, you know, not a teenager, um, a woman with experience myself. And, right. Yeah. I feel like there's obviously a place for those stories, especially for younger people who need to, to see them. But... uh but yeah, like you said, I just felt like I eventually aged out of being able to care about the melodrama. Yeah. I like really wanted to hear something that spoke about 
the things that were more relevant to me as I got older, you know, and things like that are just more interesting to me in general now. Yeah, a sweet man, which is what I call my husband when I talk about him in public, so I don't use his name. But mm-hmm. uh, a sweet man calls it the CW effect, as in the channel CW. And uh, and we've definitely figured out that both of us are too fucking old for CW. Like, you know, as much as I love yeah. characters like, um, you know, like The Flash, I I couldn't watch the show um, after a while just because the it's not just it's not that it's drama because obviously you need drama and conflict in any kind of story but it's it's the kind of drama it is it's this manufactured hysteria and you know hormone fest and i'm like oh please i'm going through menopause let me tell you about hormones (laughs) yeah i tried watching it and really couldn't get into the like will they want they like Romantic well, tangles. On a flash in particular, I hated Iris almost from the moment I met her. And I, you know, it was one of those cases where I'm looking at the screen saying, Barry, you can run fast. Get the hell out of there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do want to watch Batwoman at some point, but that's because Batwoman is my favorite comic book character. Mm-hmm. So, well, and, you know, I give most things superhero a shot. You know, I, I give them mm-hmm. a chance. I, you know, I'll watch for a while, but not if it doesn't work for me. Life is too short to watch shows that I don't like. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. There's too much good stuff to watch bad stuff. There is. Yeah. So what are you going to read for us? So am I reading mine or the piece that I like first? That's up to you. Oh, okay. Well, um, I think I'll start with the one that I like. Great. So, so I'm going to read from Little Women mm-hmm. um, by um, Louisa May Alcott, for anybody who doesn't know that. And it's quite an old book. Oh, shoot. I looked up its publication date, 19, 1920? Uh, or older than that, even. I can't remember. Um, I know that it was already old when I read it, of course. <laughs> um, and it, you know, and that like my grandmother liked it, and my mother liked it. It's one of those. So that's part of why it's an important book to me. Is it kind of came to me through the women in my family. It's it's a matrilinear thing. My guess would be that you probably didn't read this one when you were a young person. No, have I did you ever? Not. Read it? I have never read it. Okay, because it's it's uncommon for me to run across men who have read it. Oh, I have no doubt. I yeah. had a I had a, a teacher she didn't like warn me away from it, but uh, she did sort of explicitly say that it was a a book she was not going to assign in class because it would not appeal to everyone, you know, quote unquote. And and it didn't connect to me for me at the time that that was because she thought the boys would not want to be seen reading little women. But um, yeah. And, and I, and I would say it's, it's definitely a girl centric book. You know, all, all the main characters of any importance are girls. There's just Laurie and um he's an honorary girl and (laughs) and um it's you know reading it as a child the heavy moralism didn't bother me because Mm -hmm. so much of what you read as a child has heavy moralism oh yeah yeah but i've read it lots of times since and you know some parts of it are definitely stilted and knowing what i do about louisa may alcott 
you know, you, you, you can say like, aha, I see your editor, Louisa, (laughs) 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 your editor who was insisting that a book for young women must teach a moral. Ah, so I don't really know anything about her. Um, well, um, the part I'm going to read is, uh, from a chapter pretty late in the book. It's called a friend and it's, it's featuring Joe March. Who's, um, of, of the little women. She's generally the one that everybody loves. You know, she's, a uh, uh, outside typical gender roles for her time. You know, she's, she's writing plays for herself and her sisters in which she always plays the male role. She, um, at this point in the book, she's working hard to earn some money, even though she's a woman and she's not really supposed to be able to earn any money, but her family yeah. needs money, right? So she's trying and she's uh, writing like thriller kinds of stories, like definitely not feminine stuff, right? It's um, not ladies home journal kind of fiction. Right. Yeah. Um, so maybe I'll read it and then we can talk about it a little more. Oh yeah. Fabulous. So this is a chapter called A Friend. Excellent. And I'm going to mute myself so that I do not accidentally like talk or anything. Okay. Though very happy in the social atmosphere about her and very busy with the daily work that earned her bread and made it sweeter for the effort, Joe still found time for literary labors. The purpose which now took possession of her was a natural one to a poor and ambitious girl, but the means she took to gain her end were not the best. She saw that money conferred power. Money and power, therefore, she resolved to have, not to be used for herself alone, but for those whom she loved more than self. The dream of filling home with comforts, giving Beth everything she wanted, from strawberries in winter to an organ in her bedroom, going abroad herself, and always having more than enough so she might indulge in the luxury of charity, had been for years Joe's most cherished castle in the air. The prize story experience had seemed to open a way which might, after long traveling and much uphill work, lead to this delightful chateau in España. But the, na- the novel disaster quenched her courage for a time, for public opinion is a giant which has frightened stouter-hearted jacks on bigger beanstalks than hers. She took to writing sensation stories, for in those dark ages even all perfect America read rubbish. She told no one, but concocted a thrilling tale and boldly carried, her, carried it herself to Mr. Dashwood, editor of the Weekly Volcano. She had never read Sartor Resartus, but she had a womanly instinct that clothes possess an influence more powerful over many than the worth of character or the magic of manners. So she dressed herself in her best and trying to persuade herself that she was neither excited nor nervous, bravely climbed two pairs of dirty and dark stairs to find herself in a disorderly room, a cloud of cigar smoke, and the presence of three gentlemen sitting with their heels rather higher than their hats, which articles of dress none of them took the trouble to remove on her appearance. Somewhat daunted by this reception, Joe hesitated on the threshold, murmuring in much embarrassment. Excuse me. I was looking for the weekly volcano office. I wish to see Mr. Dashwood. Down went the highest pair of heels, up rose the smokiest gentleman, and carefully cherishing his cigar between his fingers, he advanced with a nod, and a countenance expressive of nothing but sleep. Feeling that she must get through the matter somehow, Joe produced her manuscript, and blushing redder and redder with each sentence, blundered out fragments of the little speech carefully prepared for the occasion. A friend of mine desired me to offer a story, just an experiment, would like your opinion, be glad to write more if this suits. 
While she blushed and blundered, Mr. Dashwood had taken the manuscript and was turning over the leaves with a pair of rather dirty fingers and casting critical glances up and down the neat pages. Not a first attempt, I take it, observing that the pages were numbered, covered only on one side, and not tied up with ribbon. Sure sign of a novice. No, sir. She has had some experience and got a prize for a tale in the Blarney Stone banner. Oh, did she? And Mr. Dashwood gave Joe a quick look, which seemed to take note of everything she had on, from the bow in her bonnet to the buttons on her boots. Well, you can leave it, if you like. We've more of this sort of thing on hand than we know what to do with at present, but I'll run my eye over it and give you an answer next week. Now, Joe did not like to leave it, for Mr. Dashwood did not suit her at all. But under the circumstances, there was nothing for her to do but bow and walk away, looking particularly tall and dignified, as she was apt to do when nettled or abashed. Just then she was both, for it was perfectly evident from the knowing glances exchanged among the gentlemen that her little fiction of my friend was considered a good joke, and a laugh, produced by some inaudible remark of the editor as he closed the door, completed her discomfiture. Half resolving never to return, she went home and worked off her irritation by stitching pinafores vigorously, and in an hour or two was cool enough to laugh over the scene and long for next week. Okay, so I could read more of it, but I think that's enough to give you the, the taste of this scene. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, I, I love this scene because it feels so real. Like, I feel like this is Louisa May Alcott's experience that she's giving <sighs> Billy right here. And, yeah. you know, and Joe... I think anybody who reads about Louisa May Alcott and reads Little Women recognizes that Joe is clearly an analog for Louisa. And, um, you know, the bravery that it took to go into there and to try to, to, try to sell work and, and make money when that was how you had to do it. I can't even imagine, you know. I, like, I try to imagine what a similar circumstance for myself would be. And like, where would an environment equally hostile be found, you know? Yeah. And I think of myself like, what if when I were a teenager, I had written like queer fiction and then walked into, I don't know, some evangelical newsletter and said, yeah. Yeah. hi, I've written a story and I'd like to sell it to you. You know, yeah. like, I, I can't even imagine how intimidating that situation must have been for her. Yeah, and, and the, the newest movie version of Little Women is, oh my God, the best version of this I've ever seen. And um, and the way this scene is adapted for that is so good. Really? You know? I, yeah. I, was, I was desperate to watch it in the theater mm -hmm. and um, kept like trying to make plans to make that happen and then just kept not happening. And then the quarantine happened. Um, yeah. But I'm... I would love to watch that movie now even more. I'm pretty sure it's available on some of the streamings because I was just talking to Lucy about it. Um, mm -hmm. Lucy um, and so she just watched it somewhere. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I saw her Facebook post about that. Yeah. Rockin'. Yeah, it, so is that film like adaptation like pretty true to the book? Does that matter to you? I don't know. Um, well, it, it's interesting because it makes significant changes to how the book was told. This book is very chronological and starts with them as children and follows them through their lives until they are adults. Um, and the, um, the movie does not do that at all. And, it was, and it's the bravest choice I've seen um, in any adaptation of Little Women in that it's, it messed up the chronology entirely. And so we start 
fairly late into, you know, Joe's a, a young grown woman at the start of the book. And then we go back and we see childhood scenes. And so we keep going back and forth between now and then. And, you know, um, but I think it got the heart of the characters and people talk about it being the one that saved Amy. Um, you know, one of the big controversies in this book is that Joe and Laurie, that Laurie's the boy that I mentioned, seem like they are so going to be a thing for the whole book, right? Mm -hmm. But then, um, you know, spoilers for a very old book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he asked her to marry him and she says no. Good honor. Yeah. And then, um, you know, other things happen and he eventually marries her younger sister, Amy. And that's, okay. if, if you were really invested in it, that, you know, that's a hard moment where you're like, what? How can that be okay? But, um, you know, in the movie version, I felt like I understood it better than I ever had before, how it could have come across that Laurie loved the March family as much as he loved Joe. And once they all grew up a little and had some more experience, it really was clear that he and Joe would have made each other miserable and that Amy was actually a damn fine fit for him. And there's, you know, you feel like they're, they're going to find happiness. Fascinating. Yeah. That's a really fascinating notion that, that, as you said, that he's in love with the family. Right. Cause you know, he was, he was the poor lonely rich boy as, as you often saw in his older works. Um, Laurie yeah. reminds me a little of like Heidi, you know, who'd, had to go off to the mountains and get fresh air. And, um, oh goodness, what was the boy's name in the secret garden? Oh, it's been too long since I've read that yeah, one, but I'm never going to remember kind of feel of like, there's this one child who's missing out on healthy, wholesome life. And by right. with kids who've had healthy, wholesome life or a family that has, we, we fix them. Yeah. You know, and that, that's a common theme in literature of gosh, over, probably over a hundred years or so that, that was something that came up again and again and again. I think you don't see it so much in things that are being written now because it is pretty judgy and, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, uh, it definitely values some kinds of lives higher than other kinds of lives. E yeah. Even just ignoring the fact that everybody in all these books is white. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like maybe YA literature today almost takes the opposite tack because every YA franchise that I just tried to think of that I have actually read has in some really significant way featured the notion that like out there outside of the place where you live is dangerous. You know, there's the woods outside of Hogwarts and there's, you know, everything and everywhere in, in uh, the hunger games, you know, and like, <laughs> all those sorts of places, like all those stories, their example of going out into the wild and, and like being on your own in the woods is a moment of crisis. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, Joe March is probably responsible for more than one scribbling woman becoming a scribbling woman because, oh, you know, and I, I loved her so much, you know, cause um, I also grew up in a family that never had enough money and mm -hmm. long to be able to do something that would help. And, you know, Joe, Joe's sacrifices, like she, she cuts her hair and she sells her hair at some point to help her family. And she starts writing these thriller stories to help her family. And um, it just felt 
like uh, she found a way to use her creativity and her passion and make money at it that would actually help her family. And, you know, gosh, I know that's the dream I still have. You know, I've, I, you know, right now I'm still trying to not lose as much money on my life. Right. <laughs> Corona's helping with that because I'm not spending money on conventions. Yeah. I was talking to my husband and I was saying it's very likely that I'm going to pay taxes on my writing income this year because I will have made money as a writer this year purely by virtue of not going to any conventions at all. Right. And, you know, and I value going to the conventions. You know, I'm, I'm not making it sound like I wish I didn't have to do that. I, I love those. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and I think they help build your career in a long con kind of sense. Yeah. But, um, but you know, it's you have to be at this a while to actually make a living at it yeah they're an investment and uh and i do view them that way but like they're they're a a relatively high bar to entry like high minimum deposit kind of investment yeah yeah most of us don't have one you know just right here handy where you could um not have to pay for a hotel and meals and stuff to go yeah so read to us from your work too so um the the work I was going to read to that's mine is yeah. um, the 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 Goodwill tour. So the new, yeah. So this is the newest release in the Menopausal Superhero series, and it's a novella that fits in um, after book two, um, which is called Change of Life, and before book three, which is called Face the Change. So um, our heroines have um, mostly joined an organization called UCU, Unusual Cases Unit. Um, And, you know, it's a fairly typical, you know, shadowy organization that deals with the stuff that regular law enforcement and safety kinds of things can't deal with, right? Right. And and that's where our superpowered people have been recruited. And, you know, like S.H.I.E.L.D. or something like that, there's a mixture of superpowered people and just amazing people who don't actually have any superpowers mm-hmm. uh, and that kind of thing. So this particular book takes um, the character Leonel, um, Leonel Alvarez, who um, began the series as Linda Alvarez. And um, within the first chapter of the first book, you find out what happened and why he's now Leonel. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think I read that on it something you were at so I think you did you, you read that on our uh, science fiction panel at congregate last year yeah. it was so much fun i'm always like well this is the first chapter either it'll win you or it'll lose you <laughs> i was so happy you were going to read that one because i was just like oh this is going to be so much fun to watch people listen <laughs> and then the other main character in this is jessica um um Jessica Rourke, she's the youngest of the menopausal superheroes, having gone through early menopause by uh, surviving ovarian cancer. So she, she's only in her early 30s, uh, whereas most of the other characters are in their 50s or 60s. Mm-hmm. So um, the scene I'm going to read, they've been touring a women's hospital um, as, as a goodwill tour. They're just trying to get some good press for the, um, for the UCU because, as always, when you've got powered people, there's a lot of anxiety about how, how much we can trust them. Right. right. And um, so they've been touring a women's hospital and they're kind of paused between visits of different rooms. Between rooms, Leonel leaned against the wall. Jessica patted his arm. 
It's hard, isn't it, watching all these women in pain, fighting so hard? It makes me miss being a woman. Jessica leaned back to look into her friend's face and saw he was serious. Confused, she blurted, what difference does that make? I'm a toucher. I want to hug these women, take their hands, squeeze their shoulders. But it's so different now that I'm like this. He spread out his arms, and Jessica noticed the breadth of his biceps and the wide expanse of his chest, not without admiration. I don't know how to offer comfort as a man, he said. But you are a comfort. When I need to talk, there's no one I would rather talk to. You listen like no one else. David doesn't think so. He says it is different now, though he still loves me. I feel like I haven't changed. Under my skin, I'm the same person he married. But it makes a difference in how he sees me, how he talks to me, and what he thinks when I react. It's a very different matter now when I cry. He lowered his voice. I think it's different for these women, too. They're on guard with me in a way that they aren't with you. He pointed back at the room they had left. When we talked about our children, you were able to talk to her as a mother. I'm a mother, too. But my experience has not counted the same because I wear a man's face. She wouldn't believe I'd ever been someone's mother, that I know what it is to carry a child within my body and nurse her. His sadness touched Jessica. It made her stop and consider things she might have said or done, hurting him unintentionally. I didn't know you when you were a woman, Leonel. In fact, it was, a, it was strange to consider that this tall, handsome man had ever been anything else, that inside he still thought of himself as a woman. He had told her that sometimes looking in the mirror was so startling that he jumped at the sight of his own face, even with three years to adjust to the transformation. Jessica's own changes had been quite an adjustment, especially before she found the emeralds that helped her control her flight, but she had never felt like she wasn't herself. In fact, sometimes she felt like she hadn't really been herself before, that her powers allowed a truer self to shine through. Leonel ran a hand over his hair, then automatically smoothed it into place. There are things I like about being a man. Things like my new voice and the ease of finding clothes, how cheap my haircuts are. <laughs> the words were light, but the tone serious. Also, knowing my opinion will be listened to in a meeting and feeling safe walking home alone at night. But there are, thing, there are times when I feel like it's in my way, places I can't go anymore, or if I do, it won't be the same. Jessica thought back to the time she and Lionel had gone to one of his favorite peluqueria to get him a haircut when his woman's haircut sat oddly against the new planes of his face. She remembered it as a great day, a fun time with her gay boyfriend. But now she knew Lionel better. She understood that he'd been performing for her, the manicurist and the hairstylist, flirting to get past the awkwardness of being there and suddenly the center of attention in a woman's face. Do you wish you could go back to the way you were before? Not really. Leonel seemed to mean it, despite the wistfulness in his tone. My life is exciting, purposeful. I can make a difference in a larger way. I can literally save lives. This hero stuff, it's different than anything I knew as a woman. And part of me loves it. It would be hard to go back to my old life, even if I could. Maybe, though, if I were able to keep the strength. But your Walter seems to think the two are intertwined. Jessica floated off the floor to rest her arm across Leonel's shoulders. Just keep being you, Leonel, whoever that is today. Wow. I loved that. Oh, thanks. Oh, that was so good. I am a huge fan of this series, and I have not gotten to read the novellas, but I really want to. 
Um, that's really, really powerful stuff. I, there is something, I don't know. I'm probably going to like fuck up talking about it, but (laughs) there is, (laughs) but there is like something really powerful and unique about the fact that like men expect to see themselves in stories. Like we just anticipate that out out of the gate. That's our baseline assumption. It's one of the ways in which we are ignorant of our own privilege. And you have done such an amazing job with that scene, especially of as a woman talking about the ways that women interact differently with men than they do with each other, but use the perspective of a person that the average reader picking it up will identify with as a man. Mm -hmm. And so you've really like figured out this wonderful way to like get inside a male reader's head and turn their own assumption against them for just a second. And like, give them an opportunity to see it from outside of their own perspective. And that is so powerful and so good. Oh, I love that. I also feel like there's something really, it's not an exact monologue, but I've always felt like there's something really interesting in Leonel's story that like sort of overlaps, but not, but does not match perfectly with the, the, like the trans experience. Right. Because it wasn't a choice that they made. Yeah, it it's not it's not yeah. like who he envisioned himself as before or like wanted to become. It's something that just right. happened to him. But still that idea of like there's a version of himself, herself, that he has, and that's who that person feels they are, and the world interacts with them in a way other than their own con- concept of themselves. And like that's a really, really powerful queer story in a way that like is in a totally different context um, that I just find very compelling and very interesting to think about. Well, that makes me feel really good to hear from you, especially. Well, yeah, I, I, I definitely respect your um, opinion on these kinds of things. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, thank you so much for reading that. That's just so Amazing. Oh my God. Okay. That's my favorite scene in that story. Yeah, that's... yeah. I mean, there's lots of, there's lots of more traditional superhero moments. You know, Leonel holds a building together with his arms and Jessica does a lot of flying and, you know, and all of that is great fun to write. But, sure. but part of what I, I love is the, um, is those smaller moments, the relationship moments. Yeah. And Leonel and Jessica have a really special friendship. So I was, I was happy that they were the two who went on this adventure. Like, you know, like I'm not in charge of that. It just happened. (laughs) Believe me. I, I have a whole idea for a, I probably, well, there are like three people I think who listen to this. So I'm going to go ahead and say it. And I don't care if it's not something that ever happens. I sort of have an idea for a sixth Withrow book and it's not about Withrow because it's about other characters in the Withrow universe that, sort of have just in my head been constantly tugging on like my shirt sleeve and saying, Hey, there's a thing about us that you would probably enjoy writing. And, uh, and I have been shocked at the fact that those characters have been like, Hey, asshole, write a book about us, you know? Um, so I don't know. We'll see. Maybe that'll happen. But I really do think that 
I'm always grateful when I hear another writer say that because then, you know, you feel a little bit less like you might actually be crazy. <laughs> right. You know, I, <laughs> I stopped caring about telling people that stuff when I read an interview with Anne Rice. No, it was a Facebook post by Anne Rice. And she was talking about how she had been watching some new show. And she said, of course, Lestat loves it, but Louis thinks that it's very decadent, you know? And, uh, <laughs> And and then she like went on to say like everything I want because she like talks all the time on Facebook about TV that she's watching and she just like binges TV shows like crazy. And, uh, and she said like every character that I love watches TV with me. And, and like every time I'm watching something, I'm also becoming aware of what each of them thinks of it. And I was like, okay, Queen Anne has spoken. It is fine for me to tell people that those characters occasionally do just like creep up on me and say, you do this, you know? Mm-hmm. So like what, what led you to write these novellas? So, um, as I, as I was writing the novels, you, you know how it is when you have something out there, you get some opportunities, you know? Yeah. That, and so my, my former publisher, asked me for a novella um, sometime after I'd written the first book and hadn't released the second book yet. And so I, I wrote a novella for a collection thing they were doing. And I really like the, the length, like bigger than a story, smaller than a novel. It's a, it's a real comfortable length for me for writing. My novels tend to run a little short. Like um, I think all three of the menopausal superhero novels are around 85,000 words. Mm-hmm. So that's that's on the short side for novels, yeah. you know, and um, and a, and a novella goes even a step simpler. And this this I feel like it's a real tight focus on a smaller aspect, and and I really enjoy writing that. And and I'm a part time writer, you know, I'm I'm a full time teacher and a full time mother and wife and dog mom and all that stuff. And I squeeze the writing into whatever else is left out of those twenty four hours. Yeah. So having pieces that feel big and full but can be written in a shorter amount of time because they are shorter is great, you know, for for the writing life I'm living right now. And so once I'd written one, you know, I wrote another one. I actually wrote this one for a charity anthology that didn't end up coming through. Like the people who were trying to pull it together failed. Um, and then when I contracted with Falstaff Books, John and I talked about, okay, well, it's going to, I had stopped writing the Menopausal Superhero series, not because I was done writing it, but because I was done with my previous publisher. I didn't trust them with my work anymore. Yeah. And, and so I wasn't going to produce anything more if my contract said they got the work, right? Yeah. So, so once that contract ended and I got my rights back and, signed with Falstaff instead then I was like okay I can get back in and so John and I were talking about how how to keep the series alive while I'm writing the fourth book and the fifth book I I'm hoping there will only be five as much as I love them there are many other things I also want to write but (laughs) but um he came up with the idea of releasing the novellas so we took um the two I had already written and um you know put them through a, a, another round of editorial process, which showed my previous publisher had a crappy editorial. Because, <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> Teresa's the one who, edit, who edited for me, and she's amazing. Oh, she's great. Yeah. 
So, you know, that's, you know, it was his idea that, well, why don't we release novellas across 2020 Mm -hmm. so that we can in 2021 release the new novel. Yeah. Teresa and I have a super secret top secret project that we're working on (laughs) that we haven't like nobody signed anything. Um, but we've like started a little work on it and, uh, and I'm so excited to get to work with her because I love her stuff and she's the stuff she edits is always amazing. So this is probably the, I don't know, fifth or sixth editor that I've worked with on a big thing. And she's my favorite so far. I would like to keep her as just mine. Yeah. Aaron, uh, Aaron Penn edits all of my stuff. Okay. Do you know Aaron? Um, I know her, but she hasn't edited for me or anything. Okay. Yet. Yeah. She's fantastic. And, um, the fifth Withrow novel was the first one that she edited and uh, it's like so much better of a book than anything else in that series. And I immediately was like, John, I need to work with Aaron on everything. Like I want no one else. And the thing is like Falstaff is lousy with good editors, you know, really are. Yeah. like Melissa's fantastic. Like you, you look at the books that these people edit, the stuff that Melissa edits, the stuff that, Aaron edits the stuff that Teresa edits. Like everybody who's an editor at Falstaff is phenomenal. But, um, but it, the experience of working with Aaron where there were like specific things that I could tell she got about what I was trying to do. And uh, that really, really helped in a way that no previous editing experience ever helped. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so grateful to have ended up in the Falstaff family because I feel like my, my work is getting um, treated way better than it has by anybody else ever. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, wow. Um, so what do you think is next in the menopausal superheroes or do you want to say, I don't know, like what's next for you? What's next for these folks? So, you know, I've, I've not, written fresh stuff for them other than little doodles um, that, you know, are just in my, my notes in two years. So for me, this is just like a big transitional moment. I was in the middle of writing um, another book that I, at this point I have to shelve or I'm not going to meet my deadline. You know? So I was writing a, a Gothic romance called the architect in the air. And I do intend to finish that, but I made the, I told myself I could have till the end of the school year and then I had to put it down and switch gears. So literally today I started trying to switch gears and it's, it's hard. It's like the, the car spinning and is going to hit a guardrail. And uh, luckily I just, you know, luckily in, in, in this, no, not in this book, in, um, in the next um, novella, there's, I have experience with trucks and guardrails. So, <laughs> <laughs> So I've I've had to do this before, like really put the brakes on something that had momentum because of timing and deadlines. Sure. It's it's painful every damn time. Yeah, it really is. So I'm I'm really just just dipping back in. And uh, today I did a lot of brainstorming and thinking, and um, I'm planning to spend the next week or so rereading my first three books and seeing what jumps out of me at me as what should be the next thread. Cause I still have my notes on what my idea was, you know, when I stopped writing it two years ago, but everything's different now. And I don't know if I will like that idea anymore. You know, yeah. I have to, and I'm a pantser of a writer. 
So it's not like I have these detailed outlines waiting for me to get back to. Same on every <laughs> front where yeah. I'm just like, I don't know where it's going. Let's find out. I guess I'd have to write it to figure it out. I am assuredly not Stuart Jaffe when it comes to writing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when he no. and I process this, this look of horror comes over his face. <laughs> My process horrifies him and his process horrifies me too, which just oh. shows there are a lot of different ways to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Every outline I've ever written was just an exercise in how long it would take for me. And the answer is always not long for me to deviate from that outline. You know, like I just can't, I, the characters have to take me there. I, I don't know where they're going to go. Yeah. I'm the same way. Um, and you know, and I'll get inspirations. Like I'll know that we're heading towards this one kind of scene, oh, but, yeah. I know, but I won't know how we're going to get there. Yeah. And by the I, time I get there, that may not be what the scene is anymore. Oh yeah. Well, with a fallen autumn, I knew the opening scene and the ending scene and I knew like specific elements of the world that I would need to bring up sooner or later. That was it. Mm -hmm. And by the time I got to the final scene, it surprised me, you know, and I was just like, Oh, well, okay. I guess what I thought was going to happen is not what's happening, but yeah. that's, you know, that's the process. But thank you so much for doing this. Well, it's totally fun. I, you know, you know, I, I would just sit here and talk to you whether you were recording it and using it for anything or not. <laughs> right, I know. I was like, I'm going to feel very safe and comfortable with Samantha. So here I am. Um, thank you very much. I Like I said, this is a very small podcast, but I hope that the people listening to this will check out your stuff because it is so good. Well, thank you. Yeah, and um, when you when you have shareable information, just let me know so that I can share it around. And I will. Where do I link people to and all that stuff? Cool. It should come out later this week and I'll send you a link as soon as it does. All right. Sounds good. Awesome. Thank you. Sure. Have a good night. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons attribution license at ccmixter.org.